You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. This Friday, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Okay, baby, we back, we back, the X-Men, Doc Coyle, come to bring the ruckus. How's everyone doing? Hopefully all right. It's, uh, I don't know, it's been a little, I'm gonna be honest with you guys, all right? Your boy, been a little, you know, been a little bummed out, a little depressed. I've essentially, you know, I talked about getting COVID on the show a few weeks back and I've essentially been symptom free, I'd say for like two weeks and I've had like one negative test, then a positive, then two negatives in a row. So I'm pretty sure I'm out of the, out of the woods. Thank, thank the Lord. But you know, the thing people don't really talk about with this damn thing is that, uh, you know, once you get it, you know, if you're responsible, you're, you stay home, you, you're not really hanging out with people. You know, I hung out with a couple friends on Saturday night. It's the first people I've hung out with in literally four weeks that weren't my girlfriend. <laughs> and, you know, and, and so I think there's an effect there, you know, because we, we have this debate, right, about whether the disease itself is obviously terrible. You know, it's it's peaking all over the country. I mean, it's it's really bad. And especially in the red states and the places where they were a little bit more cavalier with how they were handling it, it's really peaking right now. And it's going to be a long winter because people are indoors more. You have two sets of holidays coming up, kids coming home from college. I think it's going to be really bad. And this is one of those things where, you know, if you get it and it's maybe not that bad, so you don't think it's that bad, or maybe you don't know someone who's died from it. I, I get it. Which actually kind of goes to show you, like, there's a country of over 300 million people and, you know, almost 250,000 people are dead. But in 350 million or 320 million, whatever it is, like, that's almost not that many people that it's that not everyone even knows anyone that's died from it. It's kind of kind of crazy. Like, you could just erase a whole, you know, 250,000 people. That's a a decent sized city. (laughs) And uh, that could just disappear. And seemingly wouldn't be bothersome to too many people, but you know, there's that trade-off, you know, between dealing with the, the virus as it is and saying like, if people are stuck inside and the, the economic downsides of all that creates all these other problems, like I'm dealing with depression or suicide is up or hell, if you're just broke and you can't work, your whole life is fucked up because maybe your job ended or whatever. So there's all these like other issues that 
created, you know, to me, and to me, it kind of reminds me of chemotherapy, right? Like you almost have to kill the patient to save the patient. But that's what a lot of these, the more bigger solutions, the shutdowns and stuff. And I, and I know there's, it's right now, those are not politically popular. People don't want shutdowns and I get it. Uh, despite the fact that it might save lives because we have these other things, but, but yeah, it's just, it's been, it's been rough, you know, cause I think this situation is so long. It's just such a long period of time. You know, we started in eight in, excuse me, in March. Now it's November <laughs> trying to do the math. Ahead. It's about eight months. So, and, uh, they just announced the second possible vaccine the name of the company it's uh moderna not madonna moderna that's they believe is 94 percent effective so we're we're gonna start having vaccines distributed by the end of the year it looks like and but apparently it's only going to be going to nurses and healthcare workers and vulnerable communities first probably won't be distributed nationwide until march or i'm sorry april so there is an end in sight, but you know, next April's is a long damn way away. That's six months. So we we have a lot between now and then and things are getting worse. And I don't know. It's just been, you know, I don't know. I think for, for me personally, my issues, you know, it's just the repetitiveness, you know, just here's what your day is. Here's what tomorrow is. Lack of excitement, lack of, you know, I, you know, was living a pretty exciting lifestyle as far as I was concerned, you know, jet setting around the world and playing shows and just living in LA. And, you know, when I was home, I could go hang out with these people and do this thing. And, and that's all kind of been erased. And so I've, I've kind of hit almost like a creative wall as well, where writing music or all that stuff, it, it feels more like a chore because, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I just think I'm the type of person who needs variety in life and I'm not really getting it right now. And, and I'm sure I'm just disconnected from people. You don't have those natural just reward systems that put you in a, in a, in a good space. So I'm going through it right now, guys, but, uh, hopefully, you know, I think, you know, at least for me, it's always a signifier of like, okay, what do I need to work on? You know, maybe it's talking to a therapist, maybe it's being eating healthier or getting more sleep or, you know, just, just figuring some things out. So, you know, I just want to share that because I know all kinds of people are going through stuff and let you guys know you're not alone. You know, I was talking to some other musicians who are like, dude, I'm going through the same thing. And it sucks because there is an end in sight, but it's not soon enough. And when you're in it, you're in it. So we're all in it together. And, uh, I just wish all you well, you know, and don't get this damn thing. If, if you can avoid it, please, please don't get it. Well, you know, luckily we're not, we're, you know, for you guys, I don't know if, whether it's good or bad, but you know, we're, we're going to have a pretty short intro here because there's no sponsors this week. And if you'd like to sponsor the show, you know what to do. Hit me up on social media or drop me an email at the X-Man podcast at gmail.com. I just did an interview with Kim Kelly. I don't know if you know Kim Kelly. She was uh, at Vice for a bunch of years and, and did a lot of work over there, uh, was an editor, you know, for noisy and real, you know, super metalhead, but she's gotten famous the last few years for 
doing a lot of stuff on the political front, you know, and left-wing politics and journalism and labor stuff. She's really brilliant. So I was really happy. Got that coming up. Who else did I speak to? I spoke to Jerry Horton from Papa Roach. We got him coming on the show. We got some cool stuff going on. So I'm I'm really excited. So if you want to sponsor any shows, holla at your boy. And by the way, and I still, you know, just to let you guys know, I still got some X-Men t-shirts left. They have like 10 left. So go over to doccole.net, buy a t-shirt. I got some, a few of the other t-shirts, the, uh, what's it called? The Forever Committed to Being Some Band. I have like five of those left. And I still have the Doccole pick packs. What that? All right. Dunlop.com. All right, y'all. Okay. We have an excellent guest this week. We have a legend on the show. I've been, I've been lucky to have some legendary human beings on, on this show. This is, it's John Zazula. This is a guy who started Megaforce Records with his wife and he signed Metallica. He signed Anthrax. He signed Testament. He signed SOD, MOD. I mean, the, the list really goes on and on and you guys know how much I care about the history of this scene and this culture. And so anytime I have a chance to talk to someone that's been a part of this, that can give me angles that I just couldn't be there for because I wasn't old enough, I'm going to take that opportunity. So it was a real pleasure. And there's like a Jersey connection here because he's a Jersey guy. That's important for me. And, you know, he has a, he has a book and that's pretty much what we talk about. He has an autobiography that uh, he just released. And that's the impetus for all this. So I think you guys are really going to enjoy this. If you if you care about metal, and I think if you're listening to the show, you probably do. So please check out my conversation with the awesome and legendary John Zazula. I, I read through it. I got, got through it pretty quick, man. It was great. Thank you so well, much. It's meant to be really quick. You know, it was a quick life. <laughs> <laughs> did it <laughs> well listen I, I listen i really appreciate you taking your time to uh to be a guest on the show it's uh you know i i really care about history i really care about um you know just i don't know like heavy metal legacy the lore just that would that's just how i am like i'm the type of kid like i would like read the liner notes and then find the bands that the other bands were influenced by, you know what I'm saying? Like I was, I, was I understand like, you want to know the roots of it all. Yeah. Well, it's just, well, I think it, I think it matters. I think it matters to understand context, mm-hmm. you know, and just, um, you know, and I'm just, that's, I'm just generally, I guess, intellectually curious. And, you know, even if I wasn't there for something physically, right. It's still incumbent upon me to kind of like take that, be ingrained with that and take it seriously because i do good when did you join the bandwagon doc which bandwagon (laughs) the heavy metal bandwagon um i want to say 92 or 93 you know i was like because i'm i'll I'll be 40 this year Mm -hmm. so it was you know i was basically an mtv kid you know and discovered megadeth and metallica and guns and roses and all that stuff through mtv and it was like i remember i was at a there was this girl because i live i grew up in, in jersey in like a pretty urban environment in new brunswick so it was mostly like black and hispanic kids wasn't really anyone listening to that music but there were these two 
white girls that lived in the neighborhood and I went to their house and they had like, I hadn't seen them in like a summer or something. And then they had like, you know, turned into like kind of like preteen girls and their whole room was like Axl Rose posters and Sebastian Bach. And then I saw the video for um, Symphony of Destruction mm-hmm. on, and at their house. And it was like a light bulb moment. It was like, you know, the, sure. you know, the, you know, the hairs on your arm stand up and you're like, whatever that is, I need to just absorb that 24 seven. So you it kind need of, more. yeah, yeah. And it just, you know, and then, you know, then wanted to, you know, that whatever urge, uh, kids around the age get to play, you know, play an instrument and stuff. And, uh, my father was a piano teacher. So even though he wasn't, he was never like pushed anything on us. He was, you know, he, he he encouraged us, you know, to kind of get into it. But yeah, so it was like there, and then had a lot of, um, you know, especially like the thrash metal stuff. I had like an older friend who it was like right that was the, right when I was going from tapes to CDs, and he mm-hmm. gave my brother and myself his entire tape collection, and it was all that's how I got into Testament and Creator mm-hmm. and Sepultura, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, Ministry, like a lot of the heavier, you know, the kind of the going down that rabbit hole because I just got, but I got it in like one fell swoop, so it was like its own little history lesson, nice in, in and of itself, you know. But um, yeah. but 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 yeah, but you you know you you've always been a figure for me. I guess that's always been you know legendary because you know you hear these names right that are that you know you know and obviously in many ways for for metal as something that has crossed over into the mainstream metallica is the biggest metal band of all time they're kind of patient zero when it comes to being a quote-unquote gateway band right that Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh people like myself we we first hear a band like that or we get into an album like the black album which is so has an ability to kind of cross over outside of the metal world and then we go down these rabbit holes and then we discover the slayers and the panteras and get into like me i got into death metal and i got into hardcore and i got into Mm -hmm. uh you know the whole you know just anything you could you could think of um and so you're at you're at the center of it i mean this whole entire scene really doesn't exist without you you know that's nice to hear I mean, you Thank don't. You, Doc. Well, I hope I hope you know that. And I've and, been told it a few times. <laughs> but but no, I would listen. So I read the book, and and there's so many things I, I didn't know, um, especially in in the beginning. You know that you were essentially in the financial world, and right. It, you know, and then you went to prison for some. I don't even know. You know. You know you know, even how to really describe it, but that was you like, know what? It was basically misrepresenting at the end of the day, exaggerating the truth, which so is fraud. equivalent to why of fraud. Gotcha. <laughs> and you, you said in the book, you're like, I didn't, I kind of, you had like, you were like compartmentalizing where you didn't think you were doing that, but deep down inside, you felt like you maybe did know. Well, there was a whole bunch of research done on what I was getting involved in before I went to work there just to make sure I was in a legitimate world. Yeah. But as I worked there, it started to unfold that things were getting weirder and weirder and weirder. So eventually, uh, you know, you have to look at the reality of things. I was a bad kid. You mean before that? No, I was just a bad dude then. Man. Really? I was a bad dude. Really? Yeah, I, I should have known better. I paid my dues and I 
haven't committed a crime or done anything erroneous or bad ever since then, you know, but uh, I basically was corrupt yeah. in my uh, youth. Do you think that was a, do you think that was a result of uh, that kind of culture in general? The whole like Wall Street vibe is very kind of corrupt, or is that something that just well, you were dealing you with know, internally? Everybody was corrupt. Yeah, the whole scene was corrupt. But I basically got caught. Yeah, and that's what happened. You know, uh, I, I'm telling you, uh, I explain it pretty heavily. In the book, you know, uh, uh, we were selling uh, a material that was uh, nine, under 99% pure. And that's where we all got messed up because we found out when the federal, when the federal government raided us that if you were in 99% or better, it was worthless. Yeah. And we were like 983 <laughs> And, what but, were you selling? You know, what was it? Tantalum. What's that? Tantalum is a, an is a, a strategic metal uh, used for building submarine holes and things like that. It, anodes. Uh, it's just a. a I, I guess it's a very rare metal. Yeah. And there was a, a real race for strategic minerals and metals. Uh, right after the gold thing happened in those days, you know, when gold went through the moon. Yeah. And uh, everybody wanted to know what was next. And we thought strategic minerals was a good place to go. And unfortunately, it was a terrible place to go. Well, it's funny. You went from one kind of metal to another kind of metal. <laughs> yeah, I went from that crap to the holiest metal of them all, heavy metal. Yeah, well, so... So I love that period because, you know, you're talking about the whole flea market stuff, which I it's so crazy to me because I grew up in New Brunswick until I was like 15, 16. But then I lived in East Brunswick. So I was so I was right. It's like it's so fascinating. Well, it makes me think about, you know, how they'll you'll have like an ancient society. Right. And they'll be like, you know, these old temples and towers and then there's a war and they destroy everything and they build on top of it it's mm-hmm. like by the time i came up the whole scene and everything the world that you helped built had kind of like passed by it like it's almost like i just missed it you know i was like just slightly too late so i didn't wasn't there when the store was there and the flea market was there but i know that flea market and i know all the the areas you're talking about so i have this thing of like you know it's like yeah, it, I, I feel like sometimes you'll be on tour and you'll you'll enter a venue and you, you know it smells like beer and feet and but you can kind of mm-hmm. almost you can almost feel the concert from the night before. <laughs> That's a, I feel like the reverberations somehow still existed and there was obviously like even when I came up the scene in New Jersey was incredible in terms of the vitality and the creativity. Oh uh, yeah, it was great, especially New Brunswick. You had a little club in every corner. Yeah. You know, it was a good little scene. You know, uh, you did miss a, a great time, though. I know. In the 80s to the 90s. It was nuts. But when you came around, that's when we were heavy into the management thing. Yeah. And we put all our attention into ministry. 
Yeah, well, big that was a good band to be involved in. But before before we even get in there, I kind of just want to talk about this era, era where... So you were in... Like I said, this stuff is so fascinating to me that you were basically in a halfway house. Oh, you really want to dwell on that? Yeah, yes, no, I, I want to talk about some of this yeah, stuff. I, yes, so I what, did time in a halfway house. Yeah, and so... Well, the reason why I think it's really fascinating because it's so kind of reflective of, you know, either... And I don't know if it's because you had a particular vision or if you were just kind of, um, you know, just like, because sometimes I think when you're in difficult times, you kind of just, you're kind of just going blind and reaching and you just find whatever kind of works. But but for whatever reason, you were able from being in a halfway house to get this uh, flea market off the ground. You were booking shows. And that, I mean... I, I just think that's really ambitious, you know, like, and- well, I had to, in the beginning, the whole purpose of having that little record booth in the flea market, the very beginning was to make $70 a weekend so I could feed my family. Yeah. Cause Marsha's father would give us $70 every week to feed our family. And I was really, really, my pride was killing me. Yeah. And I said, you know what? I I have to do something to make $70 a weekend. So that's when we came up with the idea to start the flea market booth to see if we could make that $70. That was the whole premise of, of everything. And you're reselling vinyl, right? Not reselling. I was buying imports. Mm hmm. Uh, stuff that was overseas and selling it here. Yes. And I only had rarities and picture discs and 12-inch singles. Uh, I also, with all my uh, collectibles, had a little section in the beginning that was Motorhead and Angel Witch, you know, and stuff like that. And that started really being the talk of the town. Yeah. Well, yeah. so go ahead, sorry. And we started with $180. That's all we had, Marsha and I. That's all we had. And we were trying to turn that 180 into like 250 at the end of a weekend. But we never realized that you have to keep on investing. Yeah. And you got to keep on. So it's a, yeah, it's a cycle. We just we just were starving. <laughs> well, yeah, I know. Well, well, that's that's what that's what's really amazing about it. But. One of the things that seemed interesting to me is, you know, clearly you were, you know, in terms of generationally, you were a little older than the kind of uh, the type of fan or the young people that were really creating this this new style of music and getting into it. Um, Like at first, were you really when you started discovering the Motorheads and Venoms and bands like this? I mean, did you like did you actually like the music or is it a thing? Yeah, yeah. So How could you do well, what I did without liking it and understanding? Well, it just seemed it. left field. It seemed like you kind of didn't like well, you like, like you were I, more of an I old. I came school. from left field always. I never listened to the radio. Yeah, I always got my music from the underground. You know, when I was a kid, you know, I, I talk in, in my book. You know, I saw even Stevie Wonder when he was like a little 14, 15 year old kid doing fingertips. Yeah. You know, all the way to Cream, Jeff Beck Group, Led Zeppelin, The Who, Grateful Dead, Jefferson Airplane, you know, uh, 
Jeff, you name it. You know, so I was ready for metal when it happened. And you have to realize when you listen to Iron Maiden, you know, there's some riffs in there that are very rootsy Ormond Brothers. Yeah. Even like, there's you a know, lot of Thin Lizzy in there too. People don't realize. Yeah. How could you not like that? <laughs> yeah. Well, no, but that's the, well, that was actually what I, you know, made me kind of get a really great affection for you in general. And I think it's, to some degree, this might be kind of um, a time that's passed us by is that you were a real fan of music, a real uh, someone that loved live music and loved band like literally like you i could tell by the way you just would describe seeing a band live and kind of getting into something or the way you would you'd, you know you'd help a band work on a record and being involved with the producer and you really cared about the details absolutely it had to come out the way i saw it yeah i had a vision for every project we did we always say we because it's Marsha Zazula and John Zazula. It was a real team. Yeah. And um, I just saw it through, all through a love and an understanding of music. As I talked about in my, in my book, my father took me to see the Philharmonic Orchestra when I was three years old and the Metropolitan Opera when I was four and five. And... He taught me every little part, what every instrument was, what a string instrument was, a woodwind, you know, all these things and what sounds they make and how they work together. You know, that's why when the Beatles came, it was just so amazing how just four guys made it sound like a whole orchestra, you know? Yeah. It was all just crazy stuff. But metal is what I always call foreground music. It's a thinking man's music. It's certainly not background music. <laughs> you know. And it, it it you react with it. You know? Yeah. You react to it. It's uh and and the heavy metal fan is loyal for 30, 40 years they are now. Yeah. Can't beat that. There's a reason. Yeah. Did you so when you you're first starting to discover some of these younger bands metallica mm -hmm. anthrax overkill did you have um any kind of concept that it could get as big as it ultimately became well you have to realize that all my dreams and visions were in metallica yeah and then i started working with raven and anthrax and when I lost Metallica, as described in the book, um, it really fueled my energy level and my venom. Yeah. And it really made me intense, like a crazy man on a mission. So, like, everything around me, I just figured if, if Metallica, maybe they won't be Metallica, but if I get them all pretty big, yeah. It'll be really good for everybody. And that's why, you know, we had Man of War and Merciful Fate and Testament and Anthrax and Raven, you know, you name it. Very important, very important, very successful bands. All of them, you know. 
I mean, people don't know we introduced Merciful Fate. You know, it was us. Well, without Merciful Fate, there's no Metallica. I mean, that's, that's you know, Lars, the da- Danish connection, this, the influence. I mean, that's... Uh, it was it was influential, but Venom were a big part of it. Yeah. You know, uh, I loved the guys in Venom. I thought they were crazy. <laughs> and I was always just... I loved what I call low-budget evil. <laughs> What's low budget evil? <laughs> you had to live with it to know it. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I just loved the Venom dudes. And uh, I wished they played better then because they were pretty good now. They're a lot better. Yeah, I saw them. So at, I, wish- I saw them in LA with Venom Inc. Well, Venom Inc. is not Venom. Yeah. You know, Venom Inc. is. Uh, the hybrid yeah you know now especially with their new drummer uh, the band could do the stuff that they record you know unlike the that album they produced where just uh, the drumming was just too much yeah you know and they needed a you know uh, a different drummer to make the band what it is now i hope that make do well uh in the new go round i i can't i'm not involved with them at all you know with anybody yeah but uh i'm i I really am a big fan just saying it yeah so kind of going back to metallica thing real quick what do Mm -hmm. you think made metallica you know special i mean obviously you saw something in them but but they're no metal band is it even probably the closest band that comes to them is maybe maiden but not on the record sales level, not on the kind of pop cultural level. Um, but what do you think is special about them and that, you know, you clearly saw that early on? Well, Metallica hit you like a, how can I explain it? It, The first time I saw The Cream, I knew. Yeah. You know, the first time I saw The Dead, I knew. And the first time I heard Metallica, I knew. And the first time I saw that sloppy bunch of musicians when they first came over, you know, I even knew then there's a magic. Mm-hmm. There's a magic, especially the magic they had with Mustaine Hetfield, you know, Burton and Ulrich. You know, that was uber it's, genius. It's like a super group. You know? They always were a super group, but that was a super, yeah, super group. Um, you know, I listen to the Megadeth stuff now, and I say, I just, where would it all have gone? Yeah, it's well, it's it's hard to say because, in some respects, I wonder if it could because Dave is such a strong personality. You wonder if it ever could have worked out. By the way, I doubt it. Yeah, because um, just because happened, he, because I mean, because in some respects, I'd like may I. Megadeth is basically almost just as influential for me as Metallica is, as a, as a fan, as a guitar player, um, and and you could argue that their contributions, while Metallica is always at the forefront, I mean, Megadeth is is right there, you know, in terms they're, of they're a really good band. I I think they're very different. Yeah, of course. In the end, than Metallica, but. Um... The melodic side of the table, I think, goes to Metallica in a big way. You know, they wrote they wrote some really 
spectacular melodic songs you know um they're i can't it's hard to talk about both bands because they're so different yeah but it was wonderful i'll just say that to see the days of james and dave together yeah because that was so electric man yeah i'm talking about electric oh i know i i trust me I, it's funny you know i feel like if time travel ever existed that's definitely one thing i would use it for is to go back to see like bands when they were at these very particular times because you know band is like is like anything right like uh you have like you know like the way i looked when i was 22 years old right like i'll never look that way again right it's just a mo you're catching no. something <laughs> you, you know you'll like you'll you, you catch things that in time and life is fleeting and bands are like that. Like you'll never have that period. Like they'll never be that. Which is why live music is so amazing because it's I can see a band twenty years apart, and it's always it's a different thing. It's the same. Maybe it's the same people, but it's never the same. But that's kind of beautiful, and that's why I think why live music is always so important. It's that it's you're getting this one experience in this one time, and you'll never get that experience back. No, but, you know, you'll get different levels of it and different waves of it. Um, because, you know, I saw, of course, Metallica from the beginning. And I also just saw their little parking lot extravaganza. As did I. It's great. And I want to tell you, I love that. Me too. I love their jamming. I love that so much to see it's just more than just thrashing out. That there's some thinking man stuff in there, you know? I love that think of man's music. Well, they've they've always been that, and it's been you know the progressive element of what they did, the you know pushing things with musicianship and, and technicality, you know, really set a standard. And I think, especially that late in the late eighties uh, with the, with the thrash metal stuff, every, you can tell everyone was trying to push everyone, you know, and everyone mm-hmm. was trying to push the limitations of musicianship and speed and and uh song construction in creative ways and and to me that's still the epitome you know that's that's the stuff that formed kind of my mind um as to what the pillars you know of of what heavy metal is you know to me that those are still the standard bearers whether it's rest in peace or you know master puppets or or uh rain and blood these these records are still kind of great albums huh yeah of course great albums and uh that's another great story you know slayer greetings from evergreen podcasts we're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you the information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers i know most people don't like ads But this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. 
One Hit Thunder is a podcast where we both celebrate and have a good laugh about bands and artists that had just one hit that we all know. Each week, we're joined by a guest from the world of music or comedy to learn more than you ever thought you would about some songs that you can't forget. And we decide if they brought the one hit thunder or were nothing more than a one hit blunder. Look, if you listen to the show, you're probably going to laugh and I guarantee you're going to crush next time the bar has music trivia. Tag Team, Jane Child, Meredith Brooks, Looking Glass, Sean Mullins, Eiffel 65, EMF, Crash Test Dummies, Crazy Town, Chumbawamba. We have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week. So pass the duchy, make sure you're connected, and subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods. I don't think it overstates things to say that the Beatles were the greatest gift to entertainment and culture of our time, a secular religion, if you will, with their universal appeal and demonstrable impact on people's lives. I'm Robert Rodriguez, host of Something About the Beatles. With every episode, I speak with historians, musicians, artists, and Beatle witnesses, all in the service of fresh insights into the most joyous cultural entity the world has ever known. I hope you'll join me and listen to something about the Beatles, now on Evergreen, and wherever you get your podcasts. Another great story of success. and Slagle stole one from you, huh? (laughs) No, he never had, I never had Slayer. Yeah. (laughs) We never had Slayer. We were never close. Uh, I didn't see Slayer in the way we saw Metallica and Anthrax. Yeah. If you notice, the one thing both of those bands have, Merciful Fate had, Raven had, Man of War had, they all wrote songs. Yeah, it was a little more singer-based and melody-based. Singer-based. King's X. You know, the ultimate. Yeah. You know, the ultimate. And uh, that was always very important. Slayer was a little too intense for me, for my nervous system. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I get it, man. And that's why. And, and I imagine, too, there's also that um, East Coast versus West Coast thrash thing, too, because you had obviously a great scene there in San Francisco and Slayer being an L.A. band. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and then that, you know, we we were fortunate to have those, you know, Anthrax being from New York and Overkill being from New Jersey. There was a great seen there there's that distinction kind of between the two sounds and styles and probably just definitive of being where you're at you're probably ex- tend to be exposed to the bands that are local things were just more localized back then. well i remember the first time anthrax opened up for metallica they already knew each other and we had metallica opening up at the show place it was also Kirk Hammett's first show. And we're, we're getting ready to play. And all these bands go on before Metallica and Anthrax playing Priest kind of stuff. And Sabbath kind of stuff. Yeah. And then you see James sitting there scratching his head like, wow, this naughty scene really sucks. You know, we have Exodus and all this to open up, you know, Death Angel. And then all of a sudden, Anthrax go on the stage. They didn't have it quite right, 
but they had it in their heart that they were going to thrash and they were going to do it great. And I remember James was so happy to see that there's hope for the Northeast yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny you talk about Anthrax um, in the book as kind of like this band that, like the little engine that could, where they would they were constantly trying to get you to pay attention to them and help with their records and help with the band, but you you always felt like they weren't ready. At you know, oh, certain... that's early on. Yeah, that's yeah. just early on before they did Fistful of Metal. Yeah. Once they went in the studio and we committed to them as Megaforce and Craze Management, we were with Anthrax every second of the day. Yeah. We were the sixth member of the band. So actually, let's talk about Anthrax real quick because they they have such a fascinating career. I'm a massive fan. I got to, God forbid, got to do the uh, the Among the Living reunion tour 2006. So I got to, you know, cool. to so we got to do that, and you know, and um, and you know, I've seen them so many times. You know, for you, I mean, is is there you know Joey being the singer seemed to kind of solidify, and that was like for obviously many people that's the classic lineup. Um, you know, was that when they pretty much for you became Anthrax was when Joey joined the band? No, they were Anthrax from the second we started with them. Uh, when we said you're going to be with us. Yeah. Um, they really became Anthrax. I'll tell you when, when they went in the studio and did a fistful of metal. Yeah. Because who's on that? Who sang on that? Was that, was that, uh, Neil? Neil Tarbett. No, saying that. Okay. I went in the studio to hear the first mix, and Carl Kennedy, the producer, played for me "Metal Threshing Mad." And now I remember hearing "Metal Threshing Mad" for the first time ever. That anybody was going to hear anything from Anthrax ever, and I'll tell you something. It blew my friggin' mind, and. From that moment, the band never let up. Yeah. They never let up. And uh, that's what when they became great. <clears throat> and when they lost Neil and brought in Joey, and they hit it on spreading the disease, they proved they were there to stay. Yeah. Okay. Do you... um? Were you working with the band during the John Bush years and all that? I brought John Bush into the band. Yeah. But the way it went was I let their tour manager go, I, then Joey, and it was me next. I basically fired myself. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you weren't really once... Sound and white noise got going. You were you kind of during that cycle. You weren't working the band, or was after that, right? I worked the the cycle of sound the white noise, sound of white noise, and somewhere in the middle of it. Yeah, because that that, was it. That record was very successful. Sold a lot of albums. Oh Um, yes, it did very well. Um, I'm a big fan of that record, and I'm a big fan of John the John Bush era. But it Mm definitely seemed like the audience didn't for some reason didn't want to kind of keep going with the band and and the thing is that to some degree i almost feel like john didn't really get a fair shot because they never made i think because of the style vocalist he is they went more rock you know like the sound of the band was more. i'm gonna say something to you yeah 
I wasn't there to give any direction to the band and help them. It was their first time without me. Yeah. The whole world, the whole grunge scene, everything was freaking people out and twisting their minds. You know, and I think they lost track for a little while. Yeah. And they're back on their feet now. But, you know, the, the classic albums ended, I think, with sound. Yeah. I like Stomp 442. Yeah. I think underrated record. It could Volume be. Eight's, Volume 8's got some jams on it. I, I And I like the, uh, the last one John did, I thought, had some really really great songs i just wish they so if you listen to worship music which is a i think a modern classic um if they would have wrote songs like that and then let john sing on them i think they'd it would have been a different story but they didn't they didn't write the more metal songs for him to sing on they wrote more rock oriented material you know more well groove metal material so and and also the production was kind of slightly changed and it was a little more it was just it was just a different vibe but i'm i'm a fan but i'm a fan of joey i'm a fan of john i'm a fan of their whole career you know but it's interesting to see how the audience reacts well you know i wasn't there so i don't know yeah that's what i say that was a dark era for me and the band we just went our own ways not to talk to each other for a bunch of years yeah, well, it's tough, man. It's tough when you're you're you're. It wasn't a fight or anything. We just had nothing to say. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I want to ask you about, and this is something that that fascinates me just in general with label people, A and R people, managers. Just this idea of having that ear or that eye for talent. And being able to kind of spot out like who is, because I think the toughest thing in the world, and I think it's a real gift, is being able to find kind of the diamond in the rough, right? The the artist who's not fully formed, but you can see, well, if they do this and they do that, they could be massive. Um, clearly, you right. have you have some of that. <laughs> um, I think I think to the end, we proved that we know what we're doing. Because remember, the last band we worked with was the Disco Biscuits. Yeah. Not heavy metal. No. But if they wanted to be, they could be one of the biggest bands right now in the world. They're pretty damn big. I believe. What? They're pretty damn big right now. Oh, they're pretty, pretty damn big. But they're not as big as they could be by far. Yeah. I just saw them. And there's work to do. But they're doing it themselves. Yeah. And when you do it yourselves, you got to deal with your own heads and musicians deal with their own heads. <laughs> well, you said Good a luck. thing, you said a thing in the book that I thought was fascinating, which is like a little revealing. You said that they were very much um in charge of their own business and they were very smart. And you said, well, they knew all our tricks. <laughs> they learned all our tricks. <laughs> you well, know, like I teach people things from the beginning, like school. Yeah. Well, my bands, the first thing I teach is to don't do anything cliche. Yeah. You mean creatively? Yes. Yeah. That's what I meant. Creative tricks. Okay. We gave them the idea to do Camp Bisco, the festival, which is so huge now, you know, and to do this and to do that and to bring in DJs and 
to fly the helicopter above the place during the song, helicopter and shine the lights down on the fans and the crowd. You know, all little things like that, you know? It is the kind of little things we used to come up with and, you know, anthrax, the, the time stage for persistence of time with the clock that went backwards and anthrax lights up and the stars were three-dimensional, you know? I don't know if you ever saw that one. <clears throat> but that was a really nice set. Yeah, I did not see that, by the way. I didn't yeah, see that was that was beautiful. I don't think I think the first time I saw Anthrax actually was on was when Volume Eight came out and they were playing. Oh my god! At the Birch Hill with uh, Life of Agony when Whitfield Crane from Ugly Kid <laughs> Joe was singing and Vision of Disorder and this band called Grinspoon from Australia. <laughs> oh were, my god! They were great. They actually sounded great. I'm sure they did. It's hard to be a bad band. Yeah. When you got when you got those players, it's hard to be bad. And they always had great extra guitar players. Yeah, I forget. I think they had a uh, Crane. What's his name? Uh, Paul. No, Paul Crook was playing at the time. Paul Sorry. Crook. I mean, look at that. Yeah. That man could play the guitar. Definitely could, and strong jawed and and very swarthy. Shout out to Paul Crook. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um. But no, but I mean, what that kind of skill or talent for being able to recognize talent, you think that's just like a natural thing? Because clearly, you know, at this time you have, you know, you're in touch with other A&R people or other uh, independent labels who are basically out there to a certain degree. You guys are all looking for the next whatever. I mean, what 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 is that? You know, I get things. The problem is everybody wants me to say on Facebook that I love their music. Yeah. It means a lot to them. And I have to lose friends and say I can't do it because as nice as it is, it's not going to change the world. Yeah. You know, and uh, it's just, it's very, very hard. But, but if you want to know if it's genetic or whatever it is, I have no idea. All I know is I've been listening to music for a long time. I don't watch TV. That's all I do is listen to music. You know, I'm trying to catch up on on some of my metal now. You know, I'm listening to like Deicide and that kind of stuff. You know, trying to just see what I missed. You know, I never even knew all the creator songs. You know, and I'm catching up on Creator and Arch Enemy and all that stuff and just trying to stay not I'll never be as current as as I could be, but at least to know what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's I mean, I think that's really cool because, you know, you see how things evolve with the management and the label and some different companies you, you, you set up and, you know, you go from, you know, working you know, from a very traditional kind of heavy metal background and you kind of see how the music changes and how it evolves and like the, you know, a band like Soil Work, right? Like how different musically a band like that is than kind of where you where, where you started, but you do keep growing with that, you know, which I think is, is impressive. And, and Soil Work keep growing. Yeah. You know, they have... That's a band with great players. Oh yeah, and you're just they're I mean they're one of my most favorite bands of all time. Really? I I just spoke to Bjorn the other day. 
we check in on each other just to make sure we're okay. That's great. Or he checks in on me to make sure I haven't flown off into space. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what they all talk about it, real quick is, uh, you know, you had a, a record label and, and seemed like the most um, prolific years in terms of literally just the number of releases were in the first five or six years of, of, of the record label. Yeah. And, but you also would manage bands which um, I know for some people, you know, it's, you know, there could be some people perceive it could be like a conflict of interest if you're putting out the label, but you're also managing the band. But how would you know, you know, for example, and well, in some ways, actually, I, I kind of commend you for this of doing a deal like with a band like Anthrax where they have that ability to work with a Def Jam or an Island or was it Island or was it Island Def Jam? Island. Um, Island records or the deal you did with Atlantic because in a certain way, you're kind of saying, Hey, you know, our label can do this, which is good, but th- it's better for the bands to get that extra push and get that extra, these bigger budgets and kind of, so what, like, what was the idea behind that of working with major labels? Well, first of all, People think I wasn't aware that the greatest prize I could have had was to hold on to the masters and not gone with the major labels. Yeah. Because today I'd be sitting with the Metallica albums, the Anthrax albums, the Testament albums, the Overkill albums, the Merciful Faith, the Man of War. I'd be sitting with all that, Raven, in my library and be selling it all over the world over and over and over again. But it wasn't the best thing for the bands. Yeah. Because I didn't have the pockets and Marsha didn't have the pockets to do. We realized early on that a band had to tour and money had to come from the touring. We realized that you don't tour a band unless you can promote and advertise it. And and we didn't believe the promoters would do a good enough job. So we made sure that if we did a tour, we could not only tour supported by supporting the band on the road, but by supporting the band with advertisements and full pages and quarter pages every time they went into a market. Yeah. We also made sure if there was a radio station, a radio station would at least be mentioning the show. Yeah. Well, they it's... may not do advertisements, but, you know, you do something with them and they'll mention the show a few times and we'll get people, to, we got people to the shows. I don't exactly know what the whole question was. Oh no, I just I just think it's a really because usually early on when it's an independent label, it's like we're a label. And they just do label shit. But you yeah, you, you had true. a you had a broad what I'm saying is you had a broader mentality of kind of seeing your role. We had the big picture. Yeah. Which is very it's fairly unique for that time period. Whereas like like I had um Carl Severson who owned who owned Ferret Records. And uh, later would have good. Uh, he sold the label and then started Good Fight Entertainment. And when he started, so he had Ferret Records, and that's what he did. He had he owned the record label and sold the label. But later on, when he started his second company, then he formed a management section of the company. And but it was like it was a very different business. You know, it was like here's the label here and here's the management here and he formed that with someone else and you know and it was but that was at the time a lot of labels were doing that because the sales were going down. 
So people, so they were starting to see they're like, hey, if we don't expand what we do business wise, then we really can't stay afloat. Well, we realized that from the beginning, Doug. Yeah. You know, we knew, look, anthrax, we needed a video. It wasn't a lot of money, but $20,000. Hold on. $20,000 for Madhouse. You know what I'm saying? And some of our videos were 100,000, 50,000, 60,000. We couldn't do that as a little mega force. Yeah. You know, touring bands across the world. What we went through to do that Kill Em All for One with Metallica and Raven was gut-wrenching, was killing, was stressful beyond belief. Yeah. But when you had the money to do it properly and it's budgeted for the bus or the van or whatever it had to be, you know, you had money to know that you could pay for the T-shirts and stuff like that. You know, it's a different world. And that came with major labels. You know, Overkill had it in Union as a video. It got them from 8,000 sales to 37,000, you know? Yeah. Testament over the wall. And like, Atlantic wouldn't even give us the money. We said, fuck it. We, we did the over the wall video for Testament ourselves because Atlantic didn't believe in them. Which was kind of crazy. Like every record they did with Atlantic went gold, right? They're pretty much there, I guess. I have no idea. Yeah, I know they did. I know they did well. You know, they did very well. Testament did very, very well, and still do. Yeah, one of my also one of my one of my favorite bands. Oh, I love Testament. Um, was there anything, you know, because we, we, I guess to a certain degree, maybe we already talked about this, so maybe this is a little redundant, but, you know, do you think there was something special about the scene in New Jersey in terms of, like, what was going on in, in terms of connecting with bands or maybe things going on locally, or is it just kind of just happenstance? Well, you know, we had the whole Asbury Park scene. You know, we had Kiss playing in Asbury Park twice or three times, twice before they even played the center there, you know? Uh, people came to New Jersey like bands go to Detroit. Yeah. You know, blue collar, and metal is a blue collar music, mm -hmm. pretty much. And uh, people that really had to get their aggressions out, and New Jersey has bad earmarked for uh, what they're all about. You know, people want to get their questions out in a blue-collar, hard-working town called New Jersey. <laughs> and they need their metal to survive. Yeah, it's it's so funny. So, so I, I moved to L.A., you know, about six years ago. And... <laughs> hey, you went to Florida. You, know, you, 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 you abandoned Jersey, too. But uh, <laughs> actually went to Pennsylvania first. But uh, That's right. But... um. But no, it's, you you get a different sense of things of your home area when you spend some time away, you know. And like Bad Wolves had the opportunity to play down at the Stone Pony, like an outdoor show with uh, Papa Roach, not that long ago. Mm -hmm. And it was just, and it's so like it, I, I don't know. I'm just kind of connecting to the things you're saying about that blue collar thing. You know, it's it's New Jersey is relatively unique. I think, and just the way, because it's always, I know, you know, knowing, you know, growing up, going to the Birchill, being there when like the Starland Ballroom was really, really one of the best venues. And getting remember, Old Bridge, New Jersey. Yeah, 
Old Bridge, yeah. You got right. Old Bridge and you got Bayonne. You know, those are two heavy mecca, metal meccas. Yeah. You know, just loaded with metalheads. <laughs> Union. 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 I got some fr- I got some friends from Union. <laughs> what? I said I got some friends from Union. <laughs> yeah, the Union militia. Well, yeah. Well, it's funny. So when we were coming up, it was like, you know, they had that band E Town, who was from Elizabeth in New Jersey, mm-hmm. and it was just because uh, because when I, we were coming up, it was very much the hardcore scene and like the metalcore scene, and that was like. Mm-hmm. All the all the the stuff was really coming out of that, and then you had kind of like the new metal thing with like bands like Il Nino, and then you had like the emo thing, bands like My Chemical Romance and Thursday. I, know, I mean, that's I know. so much. There was just so much happening uh, in multiple genres. Even though, luckily, the thing that was great about the hardcore scene was it was all connected. Like we would do a show, and it would be with an emo band. And a grindcore band, and a noisy, you know, Dillinger Escape Plan, and, and I it, took it was, a break. Marsha and I took a break. Yeah, it was very just fertile. Um, and and, we, and God forbid, when we came out, we were kind of people looked at us like we were a throwback band because we were playing guitar solos and we had the thrash metal kind of underpinnings, but we were kind of combining it with this european thing and but had this you know we it was a very like uh mashed up kind of version of all the the influences but we were you know and so like when we started having some success and lamb of god and kill switch that was considered to be kind of a throwback to right the 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 thrash bands of kind of and in the grand scheme it wasn't that big of a time difference in time and for me like i said we were playing guitar solos and being metal not because we were trying to do a throwback to us that was current because that was still the stuff we were listening to it's like i would like, right i get you you I know so you, i never understood like wow you're playing guitar solos i was like i didn't think it was weird i didn't understand well why aren't you why are you not oh, playing I, guitar I solos hated that when they cut the guitar solos off the records i hated it yeah you know that really blew my mind well you know well trends trends come and trends go <laughs> They shouldn't affect who, affect who you are. Well, I mean, it's but it's fascinating, right? Like you, you, you know, like me. I'm I'm a big picture guy, you know, and I and I look at arcs, right? Of like, okay, how do how do bands evolve over time, and how does someone? Because I think the the toughest thing as a band ages or any artist really is that feeling, and sometimes it's just a feeling. Of feeling like you're not relevant, that you well, know, and that, and that's a very you know, and artists yeah. are sensitive and they're insecure, and especially when you, when everyone's kissing your ass and telling you you're the greatest of all time, and then you have a period where not people aren't doing that, and you right. feel you feel passed by or you feel that you're out of out of style or out of being cool quote unquote i think that affects people and it and it bleeds into the work and it it's some some of it's inevitable right because we kind of want we want artists to grow we want them to evolve we don't want them to stay well, there stagnant. was the dark ages doc there was a dark ages in those 90s for a lot of bands i know but it's funny but it's some of my favorite because partially it's because when i it was when i was getting into metal but that was some of my favorite albums by those by bands that 
you know, like I look at, especially Testaments era, you know, from like the ritual to low to the demonic well, gathering. I know, they but haven't changed, right? No, they changed a lot. They, the, the demonic's like a death metal album, and like the rituals, yeah. are, and the rituals are ver is probably the most hard rock, quote unquote, testament album. And like low to me is like the most underrated <laughs> record. Um, and that was a big change. They tuned down the guitars and they got groovier and heavier. Um, or I don't know. I just thought it was an, just an interesting era, you know, and you had bands like, uh, you know, one of my favorite bands that era was Forbidden. They put out this record called Green, which was like, mm -hmm. you know, for them was considered a lot of their fans didn't like it because it wasn't thrashy enough. But it, but I really liked it, you know, because a lot of bands were just, get, you know, be, they were following bands like Pantera and going a little more straightforward and not being so, so fast. And Machine Head was really influential during that time, wow. too. I love Machine Head. Yeah. Um, what I wanted to ask you about. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> no, 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 no. I, 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 I had a question I wanted, to, I wanted to ask you. So this, uh, there's kind of a theme in, in, in the book, you know, about you kind of, it seemed like, you know, there was a lot of ups and downs, you know, like that even when you were having successes, there was, you know, just like you were almost battling yourself. Always. In internally. So is that like, um, just like, is it something you just deal? Do you deal with just depression in general or is it just like a yeah, self-doubting thing? I have a very, no, I have no doubting. Yeah. At all. I have a full steam ahead attitude. It's just that I have fight manic depression in a very big way. Yeah. How did you, you know, how did you deal? How, how, how did you deal with that? Because it seemed like, I feel like there were a lot of times where, where like, I feel like you should have been proud of yourself and happy and, and not never, not till the, not till maybe now. Really? I feel that maybe, um, it's very hard to explain, but the only reason why it all happened, mm -hmm. besides the fact of my organization and my partner, is that it's manic depression. You also could be manic, mm -hmm. which means you're like going crazy doing stuff and yeah. making it happen. If I sit down and don't work my ass off, my mind goes a thousand miles a second. Yeah. If I'm busy working and doing stuff and focusing, all that crazy energy goes into the projects. And all this great stuff gets figured out and out of space to make a band bigger. What could we do that hasn't been done to get us noticed so that somebody will talk about us tomorrow morning and it won't be stupid <laughs> and it won't be cliche? Yeah. What could we do? You know, just thinking like that all the time. Yeah, I mean, I one of the things I really loved about that you you have this section at the end of the book where you talk about all the bands you worked with that perhaps maybe didn't uh, have success or kind of get past a certain point, but it it's so reflective to me that you just you cared about every project. We cared about everything we did with all our heart. I mean, we really, really, really cared. And when it didn't work, we were very defeated. Yeah. And we were very personally involved with all the groups. 
those that we weren't, it didn't seem to happen. Yeah. You know, either we were in it and we felt it all the way. You know, it's really funny. If a person wasn't even nice all the time, but he was just a genius, <laughs> you know, we would put up with it because we were so thrilled by and and enamored by his brilliance. You know, so we let people get away with murder sometimes. But then again, if people weren't that brilliant and they were acting like that, we usually cut them off early. Yeah. Well, it's a it's a it's a it's a tough thing, you know, because me being in the industry for for quite some time, and you know, I was in a band that did pretty good. My old band, God forbid, did pretty good, but you know, nice. we were never we were never a big money maker for like a manager or something like that. We did okay, but it wasn't like someone was getting rich off us. Um, and then you kind of realize like if you're not making someone a lot of money, you better be pretty nice. <laughs> you know, because people wow. will, people will like to work with you if they like working with you. You know, and and some artists start to kind of like think that they're hot shit when they're really not and start ordering people around and telling people what's what, but like, yeah, if you're, yeah, if you're Dave Mustaine, you could probably do that because you're selling millions of records or if you're Marilyn Manson, never do that. Yeah. But you said you put up, but you said you put up, but you said you put up with some of that shit. Well, when I say put up, I mean, let it fly out the window. Yeah. And not say like, I'm out of here. This person's a douchebag, you know, you know, I'll like, uh, let that person blow off their steam or whatever it is without saying it's personal. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, I put up with it. Yeah, I put up with a lot of crap. Yeah. Yeah. So Some people think that's the, maybe that is the job of being like an artist manager or a, or a deal. Is, is that you're just have to deal with these really, um, untempered personalities and kind of you know that that you know to a certain degree that maybe that is that's comes with the territory right so if you have someone who's some tortured genius that it sometimes that's right that it comes with with the insanity as well right it absolutely does yeah you're the chief cook and bottle washer yeah, you you worked with Al Jurgensen. You were telling some oh, yes. <laughs> interesting stories about that. <laughs> Never discussed them. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, you're saying the the, the details of, of which you're you're keeping keep a closed lips on. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> which is fine. Which is fine. Yeah, I I just feel that there's just so much to talk about that that's a book in itself that will never be written. Well, he has a book. He did a book, right? Yeah, it's two different books, my book and his book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, I got to see them. Battles did a couple festivals with them last summer, and they were, they were fucking great. They're a great band. He's, talk about genius. Yeah, yeah, no no doubt. And that's, um, that's something I thought, you know, because I didn't know you had worked with them, you know, and it was just really cool seeing... You know, just just being able to have any kind of sustained success, you know, and especially in with different kinds of bands, because that ministry was kind of a reflection of how music was changing. Right. 
you know, and and yes. you know, and you talk a lot about in the book, you know, how how grunge and alternative music created this great shift, you know, where a lot of the the previous bands you were working with all of a sudden were hitting a lot of roadblocks. And things were altering and it made you have to kind of change. You know, you look at all the bands, the kinds of bands you were working with, and then a lot of the new bands you started signing, it was a completely different world. Well, I also was tired of everybody sounding like the same sound. Yeah. You know, it just was boring the hell out of me. I felt that Marshall and I did our metal bit. We made our transformation and our statement with King's X. We did our pop hit with Ace Frehley. And then it was time now to look for some interesting stuff. That's when we found that group Nude Swirl out of New Brunswick. Yeah, I would see their post. I never saw them, but that was a band. Like I would just see their posters everywhere. Like Nude Swirl. Did you ever listen to them? <laughs> no, no, but I think. Wow. Like nothing you ever heard, bro. Well, did they did they do records with uh, at Tracks East? Yes. So that's why I probably saw the records, the records there, because we did all. God forbid, pretty much did all our records either with uh, Eric Rachel or, or Steve Evans over right. there. So you would you no. Know, so you go there and you see like all the bands. You know, it's Symphony X and Dead right. Guy right. and you know uh, right. all the all the artists. You know, there's always a. You always get a kick kick out of that. So that that was one of the bands. What what did they, what was what did they sound like? They were just a rock band. It was like pre Jane's Addiction grunge. Gotcha. <laughs> really great stuff. Really great stuff. Self destructed band. Mind funk. Self destructed band. What do you think was so? King's X is one of these bands. You know, and you kind of alluded to it a little bit. And I I see Doug Pinnock out here in L.A. all the time. I love him. He's the best. Trying to get him on the podcast as well. Um, love Doug. That was it's one of those bands that I feel like other bands and other people like you, label people, producers, love King's X, and everyone. The consensus is like King's X should have been the biggest band, but for some reason, hit a certain block. What do you think that was? It wasn't perfect. Yeah. It wasn't right in the groove. Hmm. It. It touched upon many kinds of music. It was innovative in certain kinds of music. It was beautiful, and the songs were gorgeous. But it wasn't, I want to fuck your daughter in my mama's car, you know? <laughs> it, it, the, the hits didn't completely hit. The hits didn't hit, and they weren't really hits. You know, yeah. Power of Love is a great song, but it's not a hit. One of the reasons I didn't want to sign them in the beginning is because I knew how great they'd be and not become a big band. But I said, let's try it once we got started. We sold 200,000 plus records. Which is great, but not maybe for those to that time and for late major label, it's probably not that great. Failure. Look, I sold 150,000 Mindfunk and Epic thought it was a failure. Yeah. Well, I guess it depends how much money you put in, right? They didn't put that much in. Yeah. <laughs> they still made some money? <laughs> Doubt it. <laughs> Nobody makes money. We're not in it for the money. We're in it for the fun ride. Well, you well you talk about your you know because money is important in 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 your story because for a long time you didn't have any and you were str- it was all you you basically and I was this is always fascinating to me when I read books about people who've had success is the period of time where you're like 
literally grinding for a dollar, right? Every dollar, it's like, it's tough, it's tough, it's tough. But then at some point, you actually break through and actually start going from struggling to actually being a successful person in a successful business. And that, I mean, that's really incredible. Well, you know, Anthrax owed us in excess of of $250,000 in royalties and commissions and everything before we ever took a dime from them years later. We managed them for years for free. Yeah. But then I did a publishing deal for them for like three quarters of a million dollars. And guess what? They made money and they paid us back. That's awesome. But that was a big payday. Yeah. But it took a while. You know, but it was all money that really came back. It just was in the bank. Yeah. So that's, you know, the way it is in the business. You know, you put it out there, you do what you got to do, and hopefully at the end of the storm, there's a little power for you to pick up, you know? Well, say, as they say, with the great risk and great reward are kind of tied to each other. Well, that's when you got God on your side. <laughs> Well, I mean, because I'll tell you something, it it was really a bitch. Yeah. Well, I mean, well, you you know, you talk about later in the book, you know, where, you know, you had a, as a company, you had fairly high expenses and yes. you kind of had uh, put yourself in a bit of a corner where the industry shifted. Things weren't really the money was not moving in like it used to. And right. You had to essentially like restructure the company in order to right. kind of survive and really and really downsize. Um, right. Was that just like, did you really not see that coming? Was it that much of a surprise, you know, in terms of like the business kind of slowing down? Well, you have to realize I'm crazy. <laughs> I'm a real madman. And I just try to turn enough corners and zig and zag and rope a dope and do all those moves to keep it going. And I felt it would continue. But what was not happening for me wasn't about the money. I wasn't getting a kick out of it anymore. Yeah. What can, what, what, did, what makes you get a kick out of it? I get a rush. I it, feel like I'm doing something. But is it, is it, doing, is it the career? Is it, Making a record? Is it making a deal? Yes, is so it... all the creative, all the creative juices flowing really turns me on. Yeah. After ministry, there was nothing left for me to focus on. <clears throat> I really was done. What? So you you actually started a, a management company with Maria Ferraro. Love Maria. Shout out to Maria. Um, All right. Ch Chuck Billy called breaking bands right. but that didn't really stick together and and we actually well, this is a little bit of a, a trivia for the guy, for the people listening is you actually managed bad wolves for a very short amount of time as well did we <laughs> or you were in talks that's what john was saying that you were in talks to i, I know it did, didn't ultimately come to fruition but i had nothing to do with this i was hearing this you know this before we ended up uh, doing a doing a deal with zoltan you may have been talking to chuck yeah, I don't know. This is what John was telling me. Like, all I know is that it was all just too much. Yeah. For me, man. It's, too much work know, I, or just what? Too much work or just too much stress? Well, you know what? I can't 
there's a lot of psychological work that goes into being a manager. Yeah. And I just can't deal with it. Yeah. And uh, that basically is what took me out. I had enough. And then Marsha had, you know, cancer. Oh. She's okay now. Good, good. But she had it for three years. Wow. And she fought it and won. But in the period that she was fighting, I didn't want to be out there doing anything but being by her side. Yeah. And I just, that's it. Just like that. Flick of the switch. And uh, is the impetus behind writing the book just to kind of like, you know, just want to make sure you tell your story before you don't have a chance? Well, I was sitting around doing fuck all. And I just felt like it was time to tell the story and realized I didn't even remember half of it. Yeah. So I went and grabbed somebody to work with me, this Harold, Claros Maldonado, <clears throat> excuse me, who's a researcher. And he and I researched my life. And then I told the story along the storyline. But I wanted to do it before it became a total forgotten issue. Is the book out now? Can people buy it? Oh, not only is the book out, but uh, it's on Amazon. Okay, so I don't sell it in stores. I did it all myself. Well, so just so people know, it's called Heavy Tales. I read it's it. It's on Amazon.com. You could get the audio book. I did an audio version too, by the way. Did you? Did you do the audio? I tell the story, the whole story. That's awesome. Chuck Billy tells his forward. Um, it, it's fun. There's an extra two and a half hours of uh, live Q&A in there. That's great. That's a pisser. I talk about a lot of great things. <clears throat> but anyway, the book's out. The e-book's out. The hard book is out. The soft book is out. <laughs> and then on October 22nd, believe it or not, they're putting out the disc set of the audio, seven disc set. Because mm -hmm. there's over 117 pictures yeah, yeah, that no. you get with, with it also. So anyway, that's the story. And it's all out there for you to check out. <laughs> right on. Well, listen, I, listen I, I definitely, without the work you did, unbeknownst to me you know i don't think i would i would be here doing what, what, what i'm doing you wrote a really beautiful uh note to me when you signed the book and i i really appreciate that it definitely means the world to me because you like i said you know how i started this conversation i i, I care about where this all came from because if you don't know where you came from you don't know where you're going um and it's you know we even though we came up in different time periods it's like we're all connected by this oh know? yeah you know and that's oh yeah a big that's a big deal to me and and so it's it's very important for me to like create this with the show create kind of a catalog of all this stuff you know of like i don't know it's like it's like i don't know it, the, the culture of it, yeah the, well there's the culture of it and keeping it all together is very is very important to me well, listen, I hope you have some more groovy, groovy guests. Yeah, uh, dude, I just spoke to Dave Lombardo last week. Oh, Dave, that's so wonderful. I was so embarrassed. I ran into him with shorter hair. I didn't recognize him. I didn't know who he was. 
I'm such a dunce. I just don't know who anybody is. The only person I recognize all the time is James, Laws, Trujillo, the boys, and Tom Araya. <laughs> yeah, I'm like I'm like I'm in a, I'm in a band with uh with uh Robert and and Kirk. This this band called the Wedding Band. So I'm I'm friends with them. And I talk so I talk to Robert pretty pretty regularly. And they're they're such great guys. And it's uh like I said, it's amazing that me being growing up, you know, being a little kid listening to this stuff, and then having a chance to be kind of physically connected to it is kind of unbelievable. You know, so I just, I just, blessing. yeah, yeah, I, I have, I, I have a lot of gratitude. And then, listen, I just want to thank you, you know, for taking your time to be on the show. Thank you for writing this book and sharing uh, your experiences and giving us all, you know, an entry point into this just wonderful history. And it's kind of a miracle that any of this even happened, you know? Yes, it is. It's, it's a, it's a good story. You're I, absolutely right. I agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Listen, doc. Yeah. Take care of yourself.
So that was a new soil work song called Stalfagal. Stalfagal. <laughs> I can't speak uh, Swedish. And they even uh, named their album. It's like Verkleitenten. I can never go to Sweden. They're going to kick me out. This is really embarrassing. I apologize to soil work and a great band. Well, I figured I, you know, I was thinking, I was like, what should I play after the interview? with John, you know, and he worked with soil work and they came up in the interview and I was like, you know what? Let's play some new soil work. Cause the album is really good. It's amazing how they just keep kind of evolving over the years, all the member changes and they're still putting out incredible material. That's a bad ass song. Anyway, I hope you guys enjoyed my conversation with John. What a lovely fellow. Thank you to him and everyone over at adrenaline PR his daughter, Ricky, who I've known forever, who helped set that up. I really appreciate that. That was amazing. And it's important. It's important to know about this stuff and get it from the source. And he's such an interesting guy. And go go, go pick up the book. Where is where's the name? Hold on one second. See, I got a book over here. There I am. <laughs> it's called Heavy Tales. So go pick it up. Check it out. I'm not even going to edit that out. I'm just going to keep it loose up here, right? It's like punk rock, okay? Anyway, what else is going on? Your boy still ain't admitting that he's uh, not president. <laughs> My girlfriend be like, she be reading tweets and is all mad. She's like, can you believe this? I'm like, yes. <laughs> what are you doing? Like, because at first I was like, because first off, it's definitively bad. For the country, you know, because basically all his people are going to think it was stolen. They're just going to believe whatever he believes. So even after they he leaves, they're still going to like, that's going to stick with them. And so then you interrupt people's faith in the system. And those people may never trust an election ever again, which is bad. And then there's all this stuff with the transition where they made a comparison to Gore Bush, that because it wasn't settled early, that they, you know, they think there are some holes in, in passing off the intelligence that maybe led to 9-11 because they didn't, weren't able to get the transition team up and running. And so there's things like dealing with the vaccine and all that stuff that the longer they wait to start the transition, it could really screw things up with the government. So it's not good, but, but yeah, I, you know, Trump, you like posting shit and I just... I just ignore it. I'm just like, this dude, he's shot, you know, I'm, I don't think he even believes it. It's not the, it's not, I just don't feel it. You know, I don't, I don't feel, I don't feel the fake news. Like I quite, like I did like three, four years ago. I feel like he was really believing in the fake news. Now it's just, he's just playing it. But anyway, that's going on. That's sad. Uh, I'm trying to think what else is going on. Not much. You know, like I said, I'm, I'm shot. There's dot coil and shot coil. This is shot coil. But I'm getting a lot of podcasts done. Oh, there's one thing. I'm getting back surgery in a couple days. So by the time you guys are hearing this, your boy's going to be laid up. Hopefully everything goes well. Cross your fingers. And uh, hopefully my back feels better. And I can do more things instead of being shot coil. I can back to, go back to being dot coil. Anyway, also, yo, I got to shout out ESP Guitars. They hooked me up with this Flying V's Arrow guitar it's really badass i've been playing it a lot so if you want to buy a guitar go over to espguitars.com buy some shit tell them dot coil sent you maybe one day i'll get a signature or something you know you never know all right 
that's it. Love you guys. Keep it real in the field. Oh, and I've also been uploading these to YouTube slowly, but surely. So my, my network doesn't want me to put them out right away on YouTube. That's whatever, <laughs> but it is what it is. But I'm sitting to get the old shows up on YouTube and stuff. So I'm, I'm making it happen. I'm doing things anyway. Love you guys. Keep it real. Oh, it's like, I don't know. I keep ending it and then keep talking, but it's NBA trade day. So a lot of trades are happening right now. So I got to get off this and go get, get, get on the Twitter and see what's happening. Anyway, mom out. Hello, Tom May here, host of Future Friday. I've spent the last 15 years on the road with my band, The Menzingers, where I've met all kinds of wild and fascinating people. So I started a podcast. On Future Friday, I talked to fellow musicians about the moments that made them, their passions outside of music, and the curiosities that tie us all together. I've also talked to the likes of UFO researchers, magicians, soldiers, and documentary filmmakers, and I'm constantly searching for folks that can shape and change our view of the world. You can check out Future Friday wherever you like.